Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As a young girl, Roxelana was ripped from her home in what is today Ukraine and sold into slavery. Given a new name and a new religion, she found herself a concubine in the harem of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. There, far from her home and family, Roxelana changed the course of Ottoman history. Beautiful and intelligent, uh, she quickly caught Suleiman's eye and the Sultan grew besotted with her. And breaking with centuries of tradition, forswore all other concubines. He eventually fired, freed her and married her, scandalizing Ottoman society. Until now, Roxelana has been seen as a seductress who brought ruin to Suleiman's empire, but in the, her new book, Empress of the East, historian Leslie Pierce reveals the true history of an elusive figure who transformed the Ottoman harem into an institution of imperial rule. Leslie Pierce has been interested in Turkish and Ottoman history ever since she joined the Peace Corps in Turkey, and she's taught at Cornell, Berkeley, and NYU, She's the award-winning author of two previous books and lives in New York City. She joins us for the hour today. Leslie Pierce, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be talking with you. We appreciate you uh, being with us. Very interesting uh, history. And uh, you make reference uh, to uh, the answer to the next question. I'll ask it anyway. How did you get interested in Turkish and Ottoman history? Well... I went back to graduate school rather late. I started when I was 37, and the only history I really knew, partly because I'd been in the Peace Corps and got interested in Turkey and everything, uh, that was the only history I knew, so that's what I worked on, and um, it went from there. Uh, So you must have found uh, Turkey fascinating. It really was. I'm going to reveal my age here, and I went in 1964 to 1966, and I knew nothing about, I knew so little about uh, different cultures, and so it was just amazing. And I guess the second thing I'd say is some of the stereotypes that, you know, people were saying, like, oh, my God, you're going to Turkey. Didn't, they weren't that way. It was a wonderful place to be. We all just fell in love with it. Mm. What, what were some of the stereotypes that you at least heard of before you went? I guess the principal one was that women were badly treated. Stereotypes, you know, we have not just about Turkey, but other places. Hmm, interesting. And you did not find that to be the case? No. Actually, I I think one of the things that some of us noticed was that there were more women employed in universities, lawyers, doctors, more than I was accustomed to seeing in the States. So that was a kind of a reversal. I mean, I'm not saying that life was beautiful for every woman, every Turkish woman, but we 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 were surprised. And uh, from there, you you got into uh, studying uh, the history of the Ottoman Empire. I, yeah, I didn't. I worked in other jobs for a couple of decades, and then I I really got interested and went back to school. Decided to go into history, I guess. And and uh, at that point, you remembered your interest in Turkey. Is that how that happened? Yeah, I guess I never sort of forgot it. I didn't know much about the Ottomans from the Peace Corps. I knew very little history, but. I spoke Turkish. I mean, I had a research language, so there's a real practical aspect to what I could do. I couldn't do Russian history, for example. I didn't know Russian. So yeah. I had a, I had a tool. Yeah, I guess you, uh, you language is an important tool, which you use a, you know, a lot of different of these language tools in this book, I think, right? I'm reading that you, you, had, you dove into primary sources in Turkish, Italian, French, English, and Polish. Well, I definitely had help with the Polish. Okay. <laughs> um, and we had a wonderful graduate student who read the sources to me, and we sort of translated them together. Mm. Italian, when I didn't 
think I could quite get the meaning. I have colleagues here at NYU who helped me, so I had a lot of help. French, I'm okay at. Mm-hmm. So this is a fascinating figure in history. You're saying misunderstood to, to this point. Roxolana, am I pronouncing that correctly? You are. You are. Roxolana is what she was called um, by Europeans. Actually, in among the Ottomans, she was called Harem. But we chose to use Roxolana for this book. Hmm. That's, how, that's what she was known outside of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Of course, nobody knows what her real name was because she was, as you mentioned earlier, you know, snatched away, abducted, and we don't know. We know very little about her origins. So she grew up, we, we, we think we know, it has a pretty good handle on this at least, that she was abducted from. She was, I guess, raised in what is now Ukraine. Yes, Western Ukraine. Um, so this was a practice of uh, the rulers of the Ottoman Empire. They would uh, abduct women, and uh, th- these women become concubines and, and, and bear potential heirs to the throne. Why, why this? Why not uh, you know, s- sort of what was practiced in, in the Western civilizations? This is a little bit of a complicated story, so I'll try to explain it. Um, in the beginning, they did do what we know from European experience. Um, they married daughters of rulers who lived around them, so they could make alliances with them. Um, and then as they conquered more territory and became bigger, um, that sort of became a liability. And here's the reason why it became a liability and the basic thing you need to know about this process. Um, Ottomans, like Mongols, like other peoples who originated in Eastern Asia, Central Asia, Um, They believed that all sons of a ruler had an equal right to become the sultan. I mean, they didn't do what many um, kingdoms in Europe did with primogeniture. The oldest son gets the throne and the others figure out their lives. Um, And so they also thought that um, if every son's going to be equal, they can't share a mother. So every son has to have a different mother. And this didn't really evolve until about the middle of the 15th century. So we've been going on for maybe, you know, 50, 75 years before we get to Suleiman. So once you've had a son, if you're a concubine, once you've had a son, that's it. You're not in the sultan's bed anymore. You take care of your son. And I think why they stopped doing that with royal women and moved to these concubines, who really were from nobody families, is they couldn't ask a foreign princess to get into this game. Um, so I'd say right about the end of the 15th century, they're in this pattern where it's non-Muslim women. These women are not Muslim and they're not Turkish. And so some are prisoners of war, women who've been taken in war, and some are, um, like Roxolana, captured and then sold into slavery. And Somehow she gets to the palace. Is that clear? Yes. Um, and it's, uh, you know, you can see why this wouldn't be the life that a, say, a European princess would want. Um, because of this fratricide, would, uh, I guess the, the, the son that wins, he's good, right? But the, the losers, I guess, would often be killed. And so then if you're the mother of the losing son, then, then you, you mourn your son for the rest of your life. Exactly. Yeah, your life is wrecked. Because he was your big purpose in life. Exactly. 
so the concubines, they would know this going in. I guess they didn't have a choice. They were, they were abducted, right? They were forced into this. They were forced into it. Um, I write in the third chapter of the book about how, you know, you might hate all of this. You might hate being there in the Sultan's Palace. But the whole training system, because these concubines had to be smart if they're going to groom their sons to be, you know, sultans, um, put a lot of pressure on them to succeed. Now, I don't know this for sure, but it makes a lot of sense to me that um, women who wanted to survive knew they had to get ahead. And so they worked hard. And I'm still not, I'm not saying that they still embraced their fate. But by the time they have a son, you know, they're, they're invested in him. She may have a daughter too, and uh, yeah. And so these women would—they would have to get good at politics, right? They're going to have to guide their son. Absolutely, and they're competing with other mothers of sons in the mm-hmm. same situation. I guess the other—they I mean, pack- have to be smart, smart people. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the the the, uh, the Ottoman rulers saw this as a good system because. With primogeniture, you it's it's luck of the genetic draw, I guess, right? But if you have a, a, yeah. a system with competing sons, hopefully the cream will rise to the top. I guess that was their thinking. Exactly. And there's still, I think an important thing here is, they're still on a conquest footing. They're still competing all around um, with different kingdoms, you know, on the left, right, north, south. And... They figure that the one who succeeds is going to be the one who's the best sultan for that kind of an empire. Mm. One that's still on a conquering footing, a fighting footing. Yeah. And you write that um, um, Suleiman and Roxelana, and they're 30 some odd years together, right? And then maybe 10 of those, Suleiman is off fighting. Um, so the, the other factor, you did mention this a concubine, uh, once she has born a son, that's it. She's uh, she's no longer with the sultan. She's her her purpose is to raise the son and and uh, see if she can take him successfully to rule. That's right. And um, I just mentioned briefly a son that Suleiman had before he became sultan and before Roxelana entered his life. And this boy's name was this young man. The name was Mustafa. And his mother was very much the traditional concubine. She was devoted to him. But with Roxolana, and the book pays a lot of attention to why this might have happened, with Roxolana, Suleiman seems to change the system. Now, I'm saying Suleiman changes the system, but who knows how influential she was. So Suleiman and Roxolana together break that mold of the concubine devoted to her only son. Mm. And then they go on very rapidly to have six children, five of which turn out to be boys. So by the time she's been his um, concubine for, let's say, six years, everybody, people start to be aware that something's going on. And um, so I can link that back to what you were saying earlier about her getting this negative reputation. And I think that comes in part from People didn't understand what Suleiman and Roxolana were doing. It didn't fit the mold. You know, it's going to be unfair maybe to the other young man, Mustafa and his mother. Um, and she starts to be called a sorceress or a seductress. Nobody wants to blame anything that looks 
kind of reckless, maybe, on Suleiman. So she gets the blame for, for having induced him to do this, which I don't think is, is the way it worked. But right, that's the that's the only explanation people can come up with. I guess that passes muster in any way. Um, yeah, and everything. Well, some of the major events that people really were disappointed and it made people really disappointed in, in Suleiman or make them very angry, somehow she would get blamed for for these things, too. Now, this was um, during this period, 16th century, uh, this was not unheard of in other countries to, uh, to blame witchcraft, right, or to have these uh, negative explanations about the women involved, uh, Anne Bullen, for example. Yeah, apparently, and Henry VIII accused her of her own trickery, making him fall in love with her. So it, it wasn't, I, you know, it wasn't just an Ottoman thing. I, mm-hmm. mean, I think people might, you're, you're exactly right, people might have those reactions. And for a female ruler or co-rulers in this, this time, it's, um, you know, they're, this is becoming uh, more of a more of a practice, uh, but it's dangerous. So, you know, another one to mention from 16th century Mary Stuart, kind of a little more traditional reason why she was killed. She was a, I guess, a rival to another female ruler, and then, and and so she she is killed in the end. Um, so, tell me uh, first of all, tell me about uh, Roxelana. She's uh, quite young when she's abducted, and this this must have been. Very traumatic. Abducted and forcibly removed hundreds of miles away to totally new culture, new religion. Absolutely. I mean, she went through so many, one assumes she went through so many bad moments, just getting ripped away from her family. I mean, these are, these are raiders, slave raiders who were taking her and then being marched off to where she's going to be sold mercifully it seems that she wasn't abused. I mean, nobody raped her, otherwise she never would have become a concubine. And then she travels to Istanbul, and like I said, we don't know whether she went right on the block in the slave market. So there were so must have been so many traumatic moments. Um, I'm not really sure, we aren't really sure when she would have arrived in Istanbul, if she arrived as an ordinary slave, and then just somehow did very, very well and made it to the palace or whether she'd been recognized in that long journey from the Western Ukraine um, to Istanbul, if she'd been recognized as, as a girl they wanted to protect because she seemed to have potential. So, yeah, so many traumatic moments. The name and she as we were saying earlier, um, that whole process of being selected and groomed and, am I going to make it? Am I going to survive? Once you're in the harem, that's another, another difficult time, I would think. So tell me what um, what did being a slave at this time mean? It's I think it's pro- probably some differences from um, you know slavery as as we have known it, uh, about it in in the U.S. Yes, um, first I should say there are basically two different kinds of slavery. One looks a little more recognizable to us from from our own experience, um, and that is um, slaves owned by households who put the slaves to work. Um, so that I think we can understand. There is a little bit of a difference, I think, from the American experience, on which I'm not a, an expert, um, is that there, there was, at least with people who could afford to do this, this pressure to free your slaves, 
um, to emancipate your slave after a while. So that was one you know, potentially good sign, but it was still slavery. But then um, back when we were talking about the change in the ways in which mothers, concubi- mothers of princes were drafted and trained, um, that seems to have been a different kind of slavery, and the Ottomans used it quite regularly through about the 18th century, where they would take males and females who were coming in as prisoners of war, captives, war captives, and also um, those that they had purchased or taken themselves as slaves. So legitimate prisoners of war, but, you know, this practice of taking slaves. So um, that's a different kind of slavery. And markers of this that I would want to mention, um, if you succeed, like Roxolana, you're not living the life of a slave. I mean, ultimately, you are serving the sultan. He has the right of execution over you if you should do something bad. But you're living very, very well. And um, the Ottomans used these former slaves, all of whom, all of whom are converted to Islam and learn how to be, you know, a good, a good member of the community. Um, they will do very well. Mm. So it's kind of an elite slavery. Often we call it elite slavery, imperial slavery different terms. So uh, we don't know exactly what happened with Roxelana, but uh, she she became a concubine. She entered this elite world. Um, so before we get there, what would a quote-unquote regular slave have done? Just household chores, that kind of thing? What, what would have happened there? Um, there? There's quite a range of what slaves might have done, and a lot has to do with the status of the people who buy her, the household that now owns him or her. Um, and it was a very elite household, let's say a wealthy, aristocratic household. Um, slaves who s- seemed to be to have some aptitude would be trained possibly as, um, what do I want to say, a lady-in-waiting to the mistress of the household. Um, some might be taught a musical instrument or to sing or to dance, and that would be for the entertainment um, if the owner of the slave is a woman for her own female friends, if the owner of this, you know, trainable um, slave was owned by man, if the owner was a man, you know, she might be trained for a different kind of um, performance. Um, slaves who were, you know, sort of doing the menial work, the cooking, the cleaning, so there would be a whole range of slaves in that household. Mm. And if you're a poorer person, and some slaves weren't very expensive, um, you you would presumably have, if it's a woman, use her as a domestic. I would do cooking, cleaning, maybe some errands. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Leslie Pierce, interesting new book, Empress of the East, How a European Slave Girl Became Queen of the Ottoman Empire. More following this break. Okay. It's eerily gray-green, covered in three-inch thorns and spreading across Utah's waterways. No, it's not the zombie apocalypse, it's the Russian olive tree. Once planted as an ornamental, the Russian olive is now one of Utah's top five most wanted noxious weeds. The perennial tree, or shrub, grows between 12 to 45 feet tall and can grow up to six feet per year. Russian olive is the number one threat to many southern Utah waterways. In the Escalani River watershed, this zombie of an invasive was actually lowering the river's water temperature and harming local fish populations. 
This conservation conversation was brought to you by the Utah Conservation Corps, an AmeriCorps program based at Utah State University with the mission to develop the conservation leaders of tomorrow through service and education. Find out more at usu.edu backslash UCC. back with Leslie Pierce. Her new book is Empress of the East, How a European Slave Girl Became Queen of the Ottoman Empire. We're talking about Roxelana. That's how she was known outside of the Ottoman Empire in the in the West. As a young girl, she was ripped from her home in what is today Ukraine and sold into slavery, given a new name and a new religion. She found herself a concubine in the harem of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. And there, far from her home and family, Roxelana changed the course of Ottoman history. So... Roxelana has been sold into slavery. She ends up in Istanbul, and she ends up a concubine. Let's take up the story there, Leslie Pierce. Um, and and I would like you to tell me there's a conception that we in the West have of a harem, which I'm reading that is not exactly correct. What uh, tell us a little bit about what a harem was? Um, it's a very very old term in the Near East, and it has different range of meanings. Very basically, it can mean um, a protected space. Not everybody can have access. And it can also mean kind of a taboo space where um, you mustn't go. It's forbidden to go there. So to give you an example of the way in which this is a very rich term, um, the two holiest cities in Islam, Mecca and Medina, are called um, harem. They are places where you can't just go in, you know, in your shorts or whatever. I mean, it's a, a protected space and a space that's also, um, you know, a very special space. So um, parts of houses can be called harems. They're the inner space where um, ordinary people don't go, you behave properly. They're sort of protected, maybe family spaces even. And so when you get to the Imperial Palace, now I want to talk about the palace that Suleiman would have been ruling from, where he, the sultan, actually resides, you know, where he sleeps or he has his own private quarters, where he's got male attendants taking care of him, that was called the imperial harem. So it's not necessarily a term associated with women. It's a protected space. And we know it more generally, and partly, I think, because of European writings and the way they talked about harems. We associate it so directly with women waiting, maybe I'm stereotyping here, but women waiting to be summoned to be sex slaves and so forth. And I, you know, certainly that was true sometimes. But um, I think we should be thinking about it in this case as the part of a palace where women and um, their supervisors and the menial workers who are taking care of them. It's, it's that women's world. It's a private world of women. So, yeah, we do, I guess we have generally thought of this as a, a in terms of, of sex, right? But uh, you're, you're saying there's it's a political place, an educational place as well, very much tied in, uh, into the politics of the, of the court. Yes. I mean, I, I, I say in the book that I, I speculate that one reason that Europeans, and maybe we should say European monarchs and their families were interested in the Ottomans, is that they recognized maybe a kind of um, 
parallel situation. Because, you know, you think about Anne Boleyn or the women we were talking about. I mean, Catherine of Aragon, who was Henry VIII's first wife, you know, they had their own palaces sometimes and, you know, their own spaces. So the Ottomans weren't in some ways so different. I think what is different is the Sultan really could choose among different concubines. I mean, he's not a monogamous figure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it's a good. complicated thing. Mm-hmm. It's a really complicated concept or word. And to, into this world comes Roxelana. Um, by the way, do it, uh, tell me again the name that uh, was given to her when she arrived. Um, well, I'll say it in Turkish, Hurem. And the way I would say it to you know English speakers is Hurem, H-U-R-R-E-M. This gives us a little it bit of means, insight into her personality, I think. Yes, it means laughing or joyful. It's actually a Persian word that comes into Turkish. Um, so, you know, I speculate in the book that maybe she just put a good face on the travails that she was going through. So somebody gave her that name. Mm. Yeah, we, we don't know exactly what, you know, this would have been a traumatic experience, being ripped from your family and, you know, t- taken across the continent. Um, she apparently had, you call her in the book, she was a survivor, you call her. I think she had to have been a survivor, don't you? I think so, yes. What else can we infer that, uh, about her personality, about her character? Well, we have her letters. I mean, we don't hear her speaking very much, partly because Ottoman writers, Turkish writers, didn't talk about other men's wives. It was just part of that kind of harem concept. You know, it's a private world there. You don't talk about another man's wife and daughters and so forth. Um, so we have some letters from her. And she begins to write Suleiman maybe five or six years after she becomes his concubine. And now, by this time, she's the mother of three three children. And at this point, we don't, I don't think, we don't think that she knew enough Turkish to write the letter herself. And there was always a scribe writing the letter, a harem scribe writing the letter. So she, but her, her personality seems to come through, and the one thread that you can find throughout all of the letters up to towards the end of her life when she was a brilliant politician and she knew Turkish very well is that she would be both very serious um, but very playful you find I think they must have been very fun for Suleiman to read you find these little expressions of hers so I mean maybe the joyful playful aspect and then the political aspect comes through too so those are a lot of fun to work with um, and I think they're probably one of the, the things in the book that allow you to really get in touch with her. Um, so in many ways, Roxelana and Suleiman, because it, it took Suleiman to, uh, he, he had the power, uh, they broke with tradition some important ways, starting with um, it, the sultan was not supposed to have a favorite, right? He was supposed to be with a series of concubines once they bore him a son, off they went to raise their son, but he, uh, for, for whatever reason, it appears to be at least part of this was he fell in love with her, I guess, uh, in a very deep way. He, uh, he, he kept her on as a favorite. He kept her on as a favorite, and one by one they broke rules. Um, the first was um, once she had her first child, who happened to be a son, that was it. She was supposed to be out of his bed. Well, he must have called her back because they go on for the next 10 years. Um, to produce these six more children. 
the fact that she had five sons, here comes rule number two, she's supposed to go off to the provinces um, with her one son and help him um, in his training to become a potential sultan. That didn't happen. Um, Then the next big change is that Suleiman frees her and marries her. And this is, so she's no longer a slave. He frees her and he marries her, and this has never happened before. Um, and then that sort of is the, the end of the story. I mean, she's, at that point, so powerful, and I start to call her a queen then when she's married and freed. Um, there, there, are pretty, there aren't very many more rules to break. I mean, the whole um, sort of frame of training a concubine with her sons has been discarded for this woman who's very powerful, living in Istanbul, in the imperial palace, not going to the provinces, and so forth. And it goes beyond this, right? Because she, um, she was very powerful as uh, mother of these children, um, uh, as the, the, then the wife, now uh, breaking with tradition of, of, of the sultan. But she, um, she seems to have been powerful politically as well. She was, and I, I think the fact that um, she had these earlier successes, being called back to his bed, you know, having the pattern broken for her, must have been some measure of Suleiman's trust in her. I can't imagine that he would have stayed with a frivolous woman. So let's assume that she was intelligent, she was savvy, and she figured out the new game of how to protect these six children of hers. So that must have been happening all along where her intelligence and her and her connections. We're talking about power here. I want to think about all the connections she might have forged with people in the palace, possibly outside. But once she's the queen, by which I mean married, freed, living with Suleiman in his palace, which is a break with the past, um, she starts to be able to do other kinds of things. And um, one of the things I talk about in the book that is a real expression of her power is that she begins to correspond um, with other female royal figures um, in Europe and then later on also in Iran. So she's given this, do I want to call it, power of diplomacy. She can write letters. Um, Surely there would have been a scribe. Surely they would have been, you know, vetted. Um, But she had that power. And that this sort of epistolary correspondence she has, diplomacy with these other women, she sets a pattern for that. And her successors go on to build um, larger, more far-ranging connections of that sort. What do we learn from this uh, kind of correspondence about uh, um, these powerful women uh, all around, I guess, Europe and and the East? I I suppose some of them corresponding with each other. Um, I haven't made a real deep study of this, but it seems clear to me that in part because there were so many important female rulers, rulers in their own right, like Queen Elizabeth I, or powerful wives, um, that it might even have been a necessity. It seems like it just was perhaps natural for these women to correspond. What you see um, later on in the 16th century, this is after Roxelana, looking at her successors, is that women were talking to each other diplomatically in, in somewhat different voices from what I presume the official imperial correspondence would have been. Sometimes they spoke as mother to mother. There's a letter um, with one of Roxelana's 
successor, Safia, um, with Catherine de' Medici, the regent queen um, in France. And, you know, they say, you're the mother of the sultan, you're the mother of the king, we're talking to each other this way. So it was a kind of kind of a diplomatic ploy, or maybe a diplomatic, what do I want to say, official way of, of talking. And they got things accomplished. They uh, talked about war, they talked about peace. That's what I was just going to ask. It, it, it seems maybe, uh, quote-unquote, back-channeled, uh, could it some some ways be more effective sometimes? Exactly. Mm-hmm. A female back channel, yeah. which was an important channel, yes. Roxelana was uh, was uh, very effective in uh, philanthropy. This was, and, and she saw, you write in the book, she saw the usefulness in uh, not giving uh, anonymously, but, you know, building your power that way, but she, she, uh, she really ramped up philanthropy. She ramped it up immensely. Um, and here again, she broke another rule. And this was quite soon after her marriage, so it was part of this package, like, this is a different lady. Um, so the mothers of these princes in the past had also done philanthropy, but they did it out in provincial centers where they had been sent with their sons for training. So Roxanne is the first um, woman who is part of the dynasty who builds a major foundation in Istanbul. That's a big deal. Up until that point, um, it had been the sultans and their grand viziers and some of their other statesmen, you know, who were allotted funds to build these these um, philanthropic foundations. So she sets a tone there. And then that's the late 1530s. She's officially married in 1536. Then she goes on over her career to um, establish a number of smaller um, foundations in different parts of the, um, you know, across the empire, smaller towns, smaller cities. And she does more major building um, in Mecca, Medina, and in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And she's building something in Adrianople, in the European side um, of the empire, when she's um, when she dies. Mm-hmm. So um, she sets a tone there, too. She sets a model there, too. So Suleiman and Roxalana. Uh, in a fairly short period of time, break with some traditions of, uh, I'm assuming, decades and centuries long making. What uh, what did people think? Well, people weren't always happy. Some of them just didn't say anything um, because there was this sense that you don't talk about another man's wife. So she didn't get castigated publicly as much, I think, as, for example, Anne Boleyn. Um, so this question of, you know, who didn't like her and who did like her, who thought this was an okay move on the part of Suleiman and who didn't, um, mostly we have heard in the past um, the negative story, that everything that Suleiman did wrong was her fault, that the decline of the empire began at the end of Suleiman's reign, and she was partly responsible for that. And um, that's what you hear sort of on the outside. One reason I was interested in the philanthropic work is because I asked myself, how many people benefited from knowing that it was this woman, this Hurem Sultan, um, the wife of the Sultan, who built our mosque here, who built our hospital here? So I'm, I'm very interested in that. I think we'll never maybe have a real picture of what people thought about her because of all those silent voices that may have been helped by her. 
Tell me a bit about the Ottoman Empire at this uh, point. I think we, you know, a lot of us don't have a good handle on really much in Ottoman uh, history, uh, and we forget uh, how widespread the Ottoman Empire was. Yes, by the end of Suleiman's reign, um, it's an empire on three continents, um, in the western part of Asia, today what we call the Middle East, um, deeply into Europe. Um, Suleiman was um, competing with the Habsburgs in Austria for control over Hungary, so let's take it up to Hungary. And then during Suleiman's father's reign um, and his own, um, the Ottomans moved into the Mediterranean. And by the end of his reign, they're pretty much masters of the eastern half of the Mediterranean Sea. Suleiman's father um, went down through the Middle East and conquered Cairo, so Egypt becomes part of the empire. Um, and then places like Algiers um, and other spots along the uh, Mediterranean coast, the southern Mediterranean coast, are coming into Ottoman control. So his reign is, um, the map is huge. What about culture? Um, anything to say about culture of the Ottoman Empire, and, and uh, is there anything remaining of that in modern-day Turkey and other places? Well, I'm going to begin to answer that question by saying, well, I'd say the last 30, 35 years, there has been an upsurge um, in Turkey itself of interest in the Ottoman past. Um, and universities started teaching Ottoman language, Ottoman literature, much more than they had. Um, before the 1980s, I would say. Um, Ottoman fashions became um, interesting to people. Uh, tapestries that they'd had from ancestors that had been put away were brought out. So um, that's going on now. Um, the reason I think that this was not continuous from the decline of, you know, from the end of the Ottoman Empire, 1922, until this later part of the um, 20th century is because Turkey was building a republic, and the whole republican consciousness and you know modern history was was naturally important. Um, so people are more aware, I think, of the Ottomans. 